At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Good morning, all you beautiful souls. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to join me at Operation Tangle Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Well, we got a good one for you today, as we usually do, I hope. I hope you find that that's the case. And I am so pleased to have Jesse Gould join me today from the Heroic Hearts Foundation. Jesse is a psychedelic advocate, which is a topic that we love to talk about on this show. And uh, he is also a former U.S. Army Ranger. (laughs) Hoorah! <laughs> Even though they don't say that. Why Why not? Jesse, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to have you, brother. And let's just jump right into it. You have three tours of Afghanistan. Did I read that right? That's correct. Brother, that's a whole lot of war. What's the difference it, between it, the... So the Jesse that never saw any war... And the Jesse that saw three tours, what's the difference between those two Jessies? Um, I would say a, a whole heck of a lot. I mean, because within that time, there's there's a lot of other um, development that goes on. You know, so you have the mind frame that turns into being into a soldier, but then also one that sort of accepts sort of the uh, sort of fickle balance of life and death when you're in a combat situation. Um, as well as putting yourself in a situation to take other lives. But within that, there's also a lot of growth, a lot of personal development, personal discovery. Um, and so, in a, you know, I kind of had an unusual path that I went to college and worked professionally uh, in finance a little bit before going into the military. Um, but I always knew I was lacking something. It was, you know, I never had that sort of coming of age or becoming a man sort of dynamic. So that's really what I was searching for in joining the military. And so within that span of time, you know, I found that I pushed myself to the limits physically, mentally. Um, but then also, like I said, there, there's a normal wear and tear of, of, of being in that position, being in the high paced and, and direct action um, special operations community where you do have to set your mind to, to process information and, have your relationship with the world in a very specific and certain way, which is great and, and allows you to survive in, in combat, but can also have um, some problematic uh, aspects when you're when you're trying to readapt into the civilian world. About half your military career was in a war zone, which is unusual. Um, you did four and a half years, just like I did, and uh, people are like, oh, you only did four and a half years. Uh, it's a long time, man. <laughs> it's a long time in that world. And I only did one tour. Um, spending half your time in war, roughly, and actually maybe a bit more, because how long were your tours? Uh, they're about five to six months, depending. Okay, so you didn't do any of those uh, super long, outrageous tours. No, so with, with Ranger, um, so there's three battalions within within the U.S., and so they sort of shift in terms of a presence overseas. So they're one of the longest deployed um, military units for the U.S. because there's just constantly one Ranger um, battalion over there. And so it's sort of uh, leapfrog each other. And then uh, so we'd go over there, uh, do sort of the quicks, uh, the you know, the five to six months 
uh, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. Um, and because it's, it's such fast paced direct action, you know, within, within those periods, you're doing hundreds of missions possibly, um, and, and really sort of targeted kind of stuff. So it's, can be exhausting uh, how fast the pace is, and so that's why they keep it to those sort of segments. So it's just sort of a different skill set, whereas some of the longer ones of, of other infantry units might be kind of more occupying force, daily patrols. Uh, we would do more raids, ambushes, direct action uh, style uh, missions. Now, pre-tour, uh, do you guys do a lot of workup training? If so, about how much? Yeah, I mean that's that's the year. It's the it's essentially half is just nonstop training, and then the other half is uh, deployment. So you just do that on a on a continual churn basis. You have a couple of weeks here and there of, of break, but really not. It's it's definitely a, a hard lifestyle for for family life, and you can see a lot of marriages that suffer as a result. But you know, honestly, a lot of times the, the training cycle is was harder than deployment. A lot of uh, a lot of guys actually looked forward to deployment because there was, even though the high op tempo, you still had some time to kind of like not be, to, to go into it, you're doing your job. Whereas back at home, it's just nonstop, you're out of the range. I was trained in mortars too, so we had like another additional aspect on there where we had to go to the mortar range, we had to do normal infantry range. Um, and then through that, you're doing, you know, leadership schools like ranger school, um, all that kind of stuff. So it was, uh, it, it goes by quick and you're doing a lot of wear and tear on your body and, you know, self-development, huh, obviously learning mortars. how to become, what's that? Especially in mortars. That's, uh, you're carrying a hell of a lot of weight. Yeah. You're, you're the, you're the group that carries all the weight just because you're, you're used to it. So especially in Rangers, the mortars were kind of the utility tool of, of the infantry where we either carried stuff, but we'd be on the front lines with, with other infantry as well. Uh, the, when when we weren't able to do the mortars, do the rangers stick to one size of mortar, or did you have a few different uh, calibers? We were we were trained on all of them. Uh, so one twenties, um, the eighty ones, the sixties. Um, so and then it kind of depend on where which base we're at. So we would always bring the one twenties to the bigger bases like Kandahar, um, and as well as the 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 eighty ones. But generally, if we're going on target, it would mostly be sort of the 60s because they have a handheld mold, mode. So you had to be trained in, in all of them and, and proficient in all of them. And, you know, they, they all work relatively the same. It's just how you employ them and, and sort of the, the mission style. Whereas the 120s, you know, obviously it's kind of more base defense or long range. And the, the 60s, they have that. You can um, have it as like a traditional mortar, but you can also have a handheld. So you have to understand both of those styles. That's yeah, a lot of damn weight. I can't even imagine the 120s. Our normal battle school, uh, they train us in the 60s. So every infantry, general infantry soldier, we, we have, we're really cross-trained in the Canadian military because we're so freaking teeny-weeny that we don't have a choice, man. Like, we, we got to yeah. know how to do all this stuff, at least a little. You know, we, none of us are actual mortarmen unless you're in mortar platoon, but, the, um, uh, but we still in a pinch can make them fly. Don't know if they'll land where they're supposed to, but we can make them fly anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you need that training, right? Like if you, especially if you come off, come up on a mortar system you kind of need to know it. So like the mortar platoon that I was in with Ranger was kind of the same way. Like we had to be, we had to uh, know our own comms. We had to do our own fire direction. We had to do that as well as all the infantry stuff. So it really was sort of like, understanding it but then you also have to learn how to do it old school so i remember like one of the more miserable experiences was now we have computers but we still had to learn how to 
how to um, uh, plot the trajectory on a plotting board, which is like an old school circle. You have to do like all the math and we'd be on the back in training of a, a, of a Humvee at night. You're under a poncho, only can use red lens. You're bouncing all around using these markers, trying to like accurately plot. Then you stop. You have to like launch up. The, you have to set up the mortar system within like a minute and then hoping that your uh, calculations are accurate. So it was, it was definitely a stress, especially if you're um, in a leadership position, trying to herd all the cats, getting it to, to go right. It's amazing how it doesn't resemble a camping trip in any way, shape, or form. And yet the recruiter said, no, no. <laughs> do you like camping? I was like, well, when you're camping, you get to have a campfire and tunes and beer. None of those things are there. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of mud a lot of rain yeah a lot of mud a lot of misery and embrace the suck because that's that's what makes it good actually absolutely Look, those were those were sometimes the the funniest times and things couldn't get worse and then it starts raining and then you just have to sort of laugh your ass off <laughs> just how miserable <laughs> it can get yeah and it's uh it's a level of of uh misery that that is what the good part, though, because it is so ridiculous and so, and so over the top and something that uh, nobody would voluntarily put themselves through, you know, unless you're in the army. But yeah. uh, but we do it. <laughs> and it's necessary because uh, war doesn't wait for good weather. Absolutely. And that's that's the point. And that, that was a lot of the, the ranger mentality. I think a lot of other mentality is, is if you can train in the absolute worst conditions than you know when you're on target when you're in mission and um everything is going to plan then it, then it tends to be easy for lack of a better word you know the whole training as- aspect is to make sure that you're prepared for when everything goes wrong or that when situations aren't comfortable and so that was you know for ranger school for instance it was essentially just taking away any of your comforts or anything that you sort of take for granted whether it's you know, food, sleep, um, warmth, comfort, having your, your, the, the, the appropriate tools. So if you take all those away, are you still able to effectively lead men or women? Are you still effectively able to accomplish your mission, get to target? Um, and that, you know, when you put people to the stress, you, you see some interesting things come out, but it's, it's beneficial because then you kind of know your limits, you know, how you interact, you know, how others interact. And that just makes you far more effective when, push comes a shove, you know, worst case scenario, Murphy's law is always hovering around our back. So you want to be prepared as much as possible for that. Now your four and a half years were even more intense than mine because you had more war and it's the Rangers, which is holy shit. Uh, I was pretty high flying. I was in the third battalion, which is the high speed, low drag battalion of the PPCLI. And that was my first two years. Like, what is this? This is a lot. <laughs> Slow down. And then I did. I went to the first battalion. I was like, oh, this is better. Thank. This is more like me. I like this. But um, transition was horrific. Now, I imagine after four and a half very intense years, half of it being war, tell me about the cold splash of water to the face of trying to figure out the civilian world when you left the, left the army. Yeah, absolutely. So around that time, you know, I, I uh, promoted pretty quickly and I was unsure whether I wanted to get out or not, but it was starting to come into peacetime. There wasn't a lot of upper mobility for at least the, the time being, um, if I were to stay in for a while. So it just seemed like a good transition point where things were starting to get a little bit kind of more uh, tedious in bad ways because of the peacetime 
shift in, in it, even though that didn't last. So I went back to the civilian world and I was, I was ready actually to, to hit the ground running. You know, like I said, I already had my bachelor's degree. Um, I was, had already professional experience in, in financial world. Um, uh, you know, the, the skills I, I developed as a ranger made me more confident, more self-aware. And so I thought, you know, I was ready to, to just, just really sort of explode onto the scene and, and, you know, make my mark. Um, and so for a while, the, the first dynamic was like, okay, I'm free. I'm, I'm no longer under contract by the U S government. Let me go travel and figure out what's, what's the next step. So I did that, enjoyed life. Um, and eventually I, I wound up in Tampa, Florida, um, after trying a few different things and went back into finance. And so I was working at this big international company, uh, as a financial and anal- uh, financial analyst for international finance. So this company had branches in 60 different countries. And so our department would, you know, budget and track and, and uh, make models for, for all those branches to make sure we're right on track. So it was interesting at first. Um, and like I said, uh, for a lot of us, when we get out and especially if you're high functioning, you're like, okay, this is okay. I'm starting to feel certain things wrong or, or what have you, but you just kind of ignore it because you, you don't want to admit that you were affected negatively by anything. It's sort of that, I guess, machismo or, or what have you. You don't want to be the one. But it's also, I think a lot of us have that, when we get out, that idea that PTSD is only kind of what you see in the movies. You know, it's only that, like, freaking out in, in a grocery store or freaking out with, with night sweats in the middle of the night. And so I didn't have those specific things, but mine manifested in, in other ways, which were also... Um, not necessarily healthy behavior, but you know, I was doing well at my job. I was, I was doing all the, on the outside, the green check boxes of like, okay, this is what life is supposed to be like. Um, but being more in an, and more being in a corporate environment, uh, what I want to dig at a little bit yeah. is how did you get along with the other people in a, within a corporation? Uh, pretty good. Um, I think, <laughs> I think it kind of depends on where you go. There's like the mystique of a ranger or, or special operations. And so I think you, you kind of have to be overly not like intimidating to people. So they don't like, Oh, ranger, I don't want to like get on your bad side. I mean, no, 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 no matter what you're going to get, like those kind of jokes, but I, I think I adapted pretty well. Like I so said, was that, that a, was before. that a, was that a conscious thing for you to then to uh, try to not intimidate people? Yeah, I mean, um, maybe not intimidate, but just kind of break down those walls of, of like, hey, you're a ranger, and this is my expectation of you. So just uh, it's anything you do, you know, like if you come to somebody and you're a rocket scientist, you might have to be like, hey, you know, I can still talk to you on a one-to-one basis. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to, like, kill you or what have you. So it's, you know, it's just the normal kind of social skills of sometimes people or because of your background, you come with these expectations of, of how you're going to behave and how you're going to act. And I think it's just sort of the normal human social interaction that we find the, the in-between bridges that even though you don't have, this person doesn't have military experience doesn't mean that we're on completely different planets. So you didn't feel like you were a square peg in a round hole in adjusting to civilian life. Not necessarily. I mean, I can understand when other veterans do like it does operate differently. Um, but I was, I was kind of already expecting that, you know, having gone through uh, university and stuff like that, I, I already kind of knew the, the inefficiencies or the different ways of perspectives and things operate. 
and I knew that you couldn't just <laughs> yell under the threat of push-ups to get something <laughs> done. You had to like use other <laughs> tactics in in the corporate environment. So you know, I was I was already kind of understanding that, but I also do sympathize with those that have a hard time, especially if they come straight out of high school into the military, and that's how they see things operate. And for the most part, the military operates very efficiently in, in certain dynamics and efficiently in others. And the corporate world's kind of a little bit different. Um, so I can definitely understand that that side of it. But I think I, I adjusted pretty quickly. Uh, you know, it's all about managing expectations and, and what you're, you're, you're looking to get into it. And then flexibility. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what I tell people that have a really hard time. You know, military, you know, we can plan as much as we want. But the how things actually go, how the mission unfolds, is is never to plan, and so that's why we have these contingencies plans. That's how, why we're trained to be flexible. That's why we're trained when things go wrong. And so it's the same thing when you go into civilian world. You have to be flexible. Of like, okay, this is not how I thought it would be, but how do I um, prepare myself, train myself, even in the civilian world, to make sure that it, it, the outcomes are, are what I want, what I desire. It's always impressive to me, uh, those like yourself that were able to adjust and, uh, you know, you're, you're always going to be a little bit different and, uh, cause there's a different demeanor that we have and we tend to flock together when we find each other in these different environments. It's like, Oh, there's one is <laughs> that you could have the real conversation of what you really think, but, yeah. um, uh, being able to be self-aware and, situationally aware enough to adjust yourself to those environments. That's impressive. That's a skill I never had <laughs> at all. It, it, it can be tricky, but I also, if I mentor people that uh, I've, I've known a lot of veterans that have actually used it to their advantage, even though they're a little bit different, they, a lot of businesses, uh, corporations benefit from having veterans who are um, in leadership positions because they understand how, you know, efficient that can be. Whereas in the civilian world, you don't necessarily get that training. So I've, I've seen a lot of veterans that are able to use that sort of square peg and round hole to their advantage and actually enhance um, the corporate culture that they're with. It's that sort of like task condition standard time hack. You know, we not a lot of people are have that ingrained in their head of like, if we have this, somebody has to make the first move. Somebody has to organize how it's going to happen. We have to have be on the same page of how it's going to happen. And we have to have an understanding, a mutual understanding of the time frame that that has to happen. And then that's when you can divvy up tasks. Even if you're not specifically a leader, it's easy, not easy, but it's one of those things that if you step up, you can kind of find yourself in leadership positions, even among a peer group, as long as you're not like too bossy and barking orders at people. There's, there's ways of, of nuancing it. One of the difficulties is the expectation that others will take things as seriously as you will, or that um, people will be as responsible as you will, because we uh, generally don't realize that we have the background running app of not only if you have a problem, kill it, which is a big problem if you have, if that app's running while you're in the civilian world, but um, that everything is life or death, right? And whether we know that's it or not, being able to, to tune that down and realizing, okay, this isn't, it might feel like life or death, but it's not life or death. And then uh, when you're able to keep a grip on that, then the, the anxiety and the frustration doesn't come out. But you have to be aware that that's happening in the background of your brain for to be able to, to tune it down. 
So you you didn't find that for yourself though, eh? Where uh, uh, if, where you had a, a great much greater sense of urgency than others, where um, you were taking things more seriously than, than others, and uh, you're like, why aren't you taking this seriously? Like that wasn't happening for you. Uh, I mean, I, I it happened to me in terms of a you know, I definitely had urgency and if I'm going to do it, I'm going to like dedicate my, myself to it. And if I say I'm going to accomplish something, then I'm going to do it, you know, just have respect for myself and my work. The, I think the difference is I didn't hold other people to the same standard that I held myself to. And I think that's where sort of the frustration and aggravation can lie. Is that like, again, in the military, because of the way the leadership structure is based and the hierarchy is that, you either your peers or the people below you, they have to like meet your standards. Otherwise they're not going to get promoted or they're going to get public punished or something. Corporate world doesn't work that way. So it's kind of more in some ways individualistic. Like obviously you want to augment your team and then be a enhancer to it. And you want to encourage other people, but you can't be responsible for them at the end of the day, like the boss or, or their, their, their track record is what, what's accountable. You can only, control yourself and you can only control the work that you produce. And so I think it's, it's getting people in that sort of mind frame when the, and I see that a lot with like universities and stuff like that, they get so frustrated with how everybody else is doing and that sort of the practice. And, and that's also a mental health thing of like, we, we have to figure out what we can control and what we can't control. And if we start letting the things we can't control just drive us crazy, then that's going to increase our stress and it's going to increase our reactivity and possibly, um, hurt our own performance as well. So, I mean, like in terms of the, the residual stuff, it, it didn't necessarily affect my job performance because I would just do what I needed to do and then just add on projects and get it done. And if somebody wasn't, you know, as efficient or what have you, then I'd find a way to either get them to, to, to do it or, or find a way around that. Um, but, you know, no matter what sort of the certain hypervigilance aspects, just in civilian world, like certain unconscious reactions were definitely there um, in terms of, you know, I'd I'd be at like a crowded bar or club or something like that and just, you know, feel uncomfortable or the anxiety would creep up just because there's too many people and like that kind of stuff. So that, that I had that sort of residual where it was just, um, you know, I would feel uncomfortable and that hypervigilance in groups of too many people. Um, and it'd just be overwhelming, you know, cause your, your senses are kind of more honed to what's going on. So that was, that was sort of a hard thing. Um, there were, there would be times where I just kind of felt like, I don't know, I wouldn't allow myself comfort or, or, or leisure. I just felt like guilty. Uh, and and that, that was starting when the, the mental health issues started really sort of, um, showing up where, you know, I'd, I'd be drinking too much, um, and then, our, you know, there'd be times when I just kind of had this sort of, I don't know, it was, it was sort of this weird feeling of this nihilistic sort of thing of like, I didn't deserve the comforts I had. And I'd, you know, actively like choose to sleep outside or, or, or what have you, just like I needed to suffer because that, that was kind of that ingrained military sort of thing of like, in order to stay on your, stay um, sort of alert in that you, you couldn't have these comforts because that made you like soft. And so those sort of things really started taking hold at, at certain spots. I was able to compartmentalize them to where they didn't completely overwhelm my life, but they, they started showing things like that started showing up these red flags 
And, you know, there are certain times where I was just like looking at myself, like what's, what's going on. This is, this is not normal behavior. This is not healthy behavior. So it, it seems like you were able to transition a lot easier than a lot of people. Um, what were, like, at what point did you think that you had a problem? What, what was, was there a particular event or a moment? Um, I wouldn't say, I think it was just sort of a continuation of an unhealthy behavior. Like, I think it was happening for a while. I think even, you know, some of the negative mental health stuff happened even while I was in, um, because like the Ranger sort of lifestyle was work hard, play hard. Like I said, we were spending so much time, uh, you know, training and, and deploying that when we had a little bit of break around the weekends, we would just go downtown and, and drink heavily and, and, and party and stuff like that. And then return. And even if you're hungover, as long as you could do the five mile on Monday, you're, you're, you're essentially good to go. I mean, you're young and you're fit and so you can, you can make it happen, but it just sort of instills this sort of kind of toxic way of, of dealing with life and dealing with problems or you just don't even have time to, to rest and consider what's going on. But especially, you know, the pace of life slowed down where I didn't have these distractions when it starts becoming this nine to five routine where you go in, uh, do that, go back home, eat dinner, the, the weeks pass, the months pass. And when you saw it start losing distractions and you kind of have, you start having to sit with yourself and just also sort of the clash of that kind of ranger lifestyle where, you know, I'd be drinking too much and, you know, have to go to work like hungover or have to, you know, have a bottle of beer in the morning just to, just to kind of settle down. Like all this kind of stuff of like, Hey, this is not normal, healthy civilian behavior. And so it's kind of more of that kind of stuff where I'd like, you know, over the weekend, just get, you know, way too drunk and then, you know, wake up the next morning with like a big cut on my hand from falling over or what have you. There's other times when it was just more apparent where I'd just be sitting in my room and just the depression would really seek in where I just wouldn't be able to go to sleep and just staring at the walls and couldn't even watch like Netflix or listen to music. It was just, everything was so gray. And I just got to this point where it was just like, you know, I knew I was abusing alcohol, but I didn't know any other way to do it. Uh, because that was sort of my, the self medicating thing that was just sort of allowing me to continue on where, when I was, and I know it was sort of this vicious cycle or self-fulfilling uh, cycle where obviously you drink more, you get more depressed, all this kind of stuff. But when I was depressed, it was like, there's nothing that's passing the time. Or when I just couldn't fall asleep, I had this sort of thing of like, either I could go on medications to make me fall asleep or I could just drink and then pass out eventually. And, you know, I'd seen the negative sides of both and neither seemed like a better option, but it's, you know, choose the, the devil, you know, and that was, that was alcohol at the time. Right. Yeah. And so it was just kind of red flags like that, where it was just, I would get to the end of the week and I'll just be more unhappy, more of the days. There's nothing like, there's no spark of life during that week. There's nothing that was just like, this is something I want to hold on to, or this is something that's worth sort of the, the drudgery that, that, becomes more all encompassing in, in my life. And they really, you know, even like wasn't having healthy relationships. It was just sort of this whole bubble that I was in that was just sort of un, unhappy, unhealthy. And then even once work started becoming less stimulating, when I kind of got into that corporate grind of like, okay, this is what I do. You know, I put the cogs in, in here and then come back the next day, put more cogs in here. And then it's just sort of 
wash and repeat cycle. Um, and so it was, it was more of that. And so that was around the time when I was like, okay, well, whatever I'm doing right now is not sustainable. And I realized that I was having these very unhealthy behaviors, including sort of, you know, like the sleeping outside and sort of this nihilistic approach to like, I don't, you know, I was putting myself in dangerous situations, not really caring what would happen. And so around that time I was like, okay, I need to make changes. Like this is not sustainable. So I tried, you know, what I could do at home. So try to get back into shape, going to the gym, picked up hobbies, like positive hobbies, like cooking, uh, just to, you know, add more stuff into my life and eat healthier, try to be more social in a positive way, like different groups. And then you also try to go to the VA in the U S uh, for at least to see a therapist. Um, and so I was trying all these things. Unfortunately, the USVA, uh, you know, I went there and told them what I was going through. Um, it was pretty much sort of the direct path towards medication. Now at that point yeah. I was like, I'm holding on. I'm not really willing to do the medication route right now. Um, cause I'm still, you know, doing well at my job and all this other kind of stuff and not to knock medication, but I did have the view that it was overprescribed. I'd seen some of the bad cases of, you know, people still struggling and on all sorts of SSRIs and other medications. And so I was like, this, this seems kind of more of like the last step and not shouldn't be the first step. And, you know, with the, the USVA, um, so they offered me to go through a few therapy sessions, but they essentially said, unless I was willing to do the full, you know, um, evidence-based program, which involved medication, they would have to limit the number of therapy sessions I could get. And so, you know, a handful of therapy sessions is essentially useless because it takes you so time conform, to actually conform, conform to the system or no help for you. Yeah, exactly. So just so like this, in a situation, just like Seinfeld soup Nazi. <laughs> exactly. But then that is the VA system. It was like, you got to do this or you don't get soup. Yeah. Um, no soup for case, you. I didn't want, I didn't want the soup either. Cause it was medications that has all sorts of, um, you know, negative, uh, side effects and, and everything like that. So yeah, I was in the situation where, you know, I actually sought professional help and the professionals didn't even, you know, know what was going on or, or didn't have real answers. Cause that was the other thing, you know, I was diagnosed with PTSD, but that just seemed kind of like this, this blanket term. Like it didn't really seem like they knew what that meant in a lot of ways, which now that I've been doing this work for a while, it's clear that, it is essentially an umbrella term and it can mean a lot of different things that, you know, a one size fits all, uh, diagnosis doesn't really help out with. Um, and so it was just kind of the situation where talking to professionals, they didn't seem to know what was going on. The only course was a maintenance program because essentially for most people, medication doesn't heal you. It just allows you to live life without, you know, um, destroying yourself in the process. And so, I was having this thing and I, I didn't want to just succumb to it and maintain it. I wanted to actually figure out what was going on with me and, and face it head on. If, if there was a possible way of doing that, you know, it was either, either me or my mental health was going <laughs> to, going to make it out of the end. And you know, that was, that was a battle that I wanted. It was like, I'm, I'm going to, I want to face this. I just don't know how, but there, there was no guidance. And that's what was a situation that I was in at that point where I was just miserable, no guidance. And I had no direction, but I, knew whatever I was doing and was, was not going to lead well, lead to a good path. And so in the meantime, it was just alcohol was kind of the, the in-between answer. What was your first introduction to psychedelics? So it was around that time. 
um, you know, just in my spare time or when I was driving around, I'd be listening to, to podcasts and stuff like that. And, you know, at first, I think around that time, ayahuasca was already starting to gain a little bit more into the public. This was around 2016. And, you know, it was like a Joe Rogan podcast or something. Somebody was, was talking about their, their ayahuasca experience. I had never done psychedelics. And so I kind of had the same conclusion as anybody else of like, oh, this is just a, somebody talking about their drug trip. Like, cool, they went to this space world or what have you, but how does that help me? Like, what what's that going to do? Like, what is me imagining going to space or seeing aliens or seeing a dragon going to actually do to me being miserable. Are really you imagining it though? Or is it actually happening? <laughs> exactly. Are you actually fighting the dragon? But that's what I didn't know, you know, never having done it. It was just like, what, what is this? And cause I just had friends that had done psychedelics and there's, it wasn't like they were became the Buddha or <laughs> this all seeing figure afterwards. It was just normal people who were essentially stoners. And so that's kind of what I had the, the viewpoint. But again, I was at this point of necessity and I knew like, especially internally, I was just going down a bad path and it started, it started to make me afraid of where that path was leading. I didn't know specifically, um, I wasn't necessarily suicidal, but I knew I was putting myself in situations where I didn't really care if, you know, like if I made it through it and that scared me. And so I heard about the psychedelic at first, I kind of cast it off as nothing, but when I was just at job at my job board and just like, I really am not happy at this job. I need to do something else. And more and more, I, you know, in, in my spare time, I just kind of look up psychedelics and all this other kind of stuff. And for whatever reason, it planted a seed. Um, and it became more and more, you know, in my daily thought process of, Hey, there, I've, I've heard all these other stories, you know, they're all like anecdotal and who knows who these people are, but, I'm at the spot where I don't know what's next and this has been presented to me. And at that point, you know, fortunately I've had a, a pretty strong intuition, uh, into intuitive sense. Um, and that just started kicking in and it just kind of became of like, whatever I'm doing there, there's nothing to preserve. I need to leave this behind and who knows what the next step is, but let's, let's try this, this ayahuasca and, and see what it reveals. If it's nothing, then, at least you're out of this toxic environment and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, um, we'll, we'll start the script anew and then we'll, we'll see what goes there. So but how, was, was, how did you get your hands on the ayahuasca or how did you know where to go and, and, and how to do it? So, I mean, that was the thing because it was a little bit of a crapshoot. I just started doing when, when I started deciding of like, okay, this is something I'm actually going to do. I'm it's not just a crazy like daydream. I uh, started doing like research and due diligence and saw, you know, that is, it was, it seemed to be safe, but who knows? Uh, there's still a lot of like, um, you know, scary stories of people like, Oh, it's going to make you go crazy and all this kind of stuff. So I just did research there, you know, it's a Google search. There really wasn't like a database of like, this is the best ayahuasca retreat or this is what you need to do. And so I just went through like different people's blogs and all this other kind of stuff and compiled data and, sort of compared, went to whatever websites were available, saw, you know, what they presented, did my best to do an educated guess. And so I found a spot that I thought was, was the best option, you know, it was, it was, the website was low budget, you know, but there's a lot of information on there as opposed to other places where they just wanted your credit card information. This place actually had an application process. So all this stuff kind of gave me more comfort in it. And, you know, it was, it was doing it in a very traditional indigenous spot. 
and it was deep in the Amazon too, which, which appealed to me of kind of going back into the na- in nature and roughing it a little bit. And so, you know, I, I kind of made that decision, applied and, and, and got into to this, this spot and sort of made that decision of like, okay, well, I'm leaving my job and put in my two weeks notice, which ended up being, you know, a couple months because I had to finish up some, some projects I was a part of and uh, just booked my ticket and ended up and started, um, you know, uh, preparing for this, which, what did this you know, cost leaving. You? What's that? What was the, what was the cost uh, for you? I mean, not for the flight, but just for uh, the, the experience. I think the, ret- the retreat at that time was about 3000. Yeah. Which, um, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things really was a good investment, not that much, but I, well, I, I it's was actually kinda... cheaper than therapy when you yeah. actually parse it all out of, uh, like how much do you get out of it and, and whatnot? 3000 sounds like a lot, but try five years of therapy. Like I did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I was also in this, I was also in this position where I was just like, I wasn't, you know, uh, I had, before I got in this job, I had stacked up some debt and stuff like that. So I was just paying it. So I was in this very cautious of like 3000 is a lot. Like I don't have, and that's the reason I didn't pursue my own therapy because I couldn't afford it, you know? And so I was in this position of like, okay, is this worth it? That's a pretty big chunk of change. But like I said, it was like my intuition was, was guiding me. And, um, you know, I knew this was the next step. And so I packed up everything. I, I got out of my lease. I put all my other stuff in storage and essentially bought a one-way ticket to Peru at this retreat center that I, <laughs> I hoped was legitimate and had a, a sense that it was. But, you know, I was, I was, there wasn't that many guide rails back then. And so yeah. I was just kind of going, you know, hoping, hoping for the best. And how did it work out? So I went there, uh, went to Peru for a little bit just to kind of acclimate, went to the retreat center. Everybody was super nice. You know, had to take this small plane there, had to take a truck to this port, had to take a boat to get to this retreat center. So it was super in the middle of nowhere, which was, which was amazing. It was beautiful. Um, and so I went to the retreat center. You know, everybody's a little bit nervous because, you know, ayahuasca in particular is, is one of the more powerful psychedelics. It's, it's not a force to be messed with. Um, it's so not they, a, it's know, not a party drug. <laughs> it's not a party drug. It's not a just a casual uh, decision. So everybody's <laughs> nice. They're from all over the world. A, a mixed bag of people. They're you know searching for their own healing, um, and uh, they they went over everything. And I think um, that night was just introductions. But the first the first ceremony would be the next day. So everybody talked to each other and, and why everybody's here. Generally speaking, you know, the first day everybody's a little bit tight-lipped, but they they end up growing towards each other. So the the first night, you know, went in. It was at night, and you take um, your little ayahuasca shot. For people who don't know, ayahuasca is the combination of two Amazonian plants. Generally speaking, it's a ayahuasca, which is the vine that grows naturally in the Amazon, and then chacruna, which is a leaf. So it's from a plant. It's a leaf that contains DMT. And DMT is the, the psychedelic uh, compound. But the, the vine uh, combined with this leaf actually allows your body to ingest a DMT. If you just eat the leaf, then it, it, you wouldn't feel anything. You just have, you know, bad taste in your mouth. Um, and so the combination of the vine, which contains a MAO inhibitor, and the leaf, which contains DMT, allows your body to ingest it and go into sort of this DMT ayahuasca world. That and the ceremonies generally last. And so when they, they combine them, they brew it down, and it's this little thick drink that has a very distinct taste. 
So you take about a shot size of it. And then the, the ceremonies, the experiences generally last about four to five hours of very intense sort of a psychedelic experience with sort of the traditional shapes and movements and stuff like that. But people can go deep and, you know, think they're in space or think they're in different settings. Um, and so I, I drank it and went in and it was, it was some of the most intense things I've ever had. And, and, you know, those four ceremonies over the course of, of the week and the first two ceremonies were just all out war, you know, my, my brain fighting with it, trying to gain control, kind of, you know, gain some semblance of I'm in control sort of thing. And all this stuff coming out in terms of visions and just very overwhelming, emotional sort of stuff coming up. Nothing I could really process at the time. It was just chaos. It was just sort of war and just extremely uncomfortable. And because you're in this psychedelic state, you can't even sort of like, it's not like being in a flu of like, okay, well tomorrow I'll feel better. You're, you're completely outside of that sort of cognition. And so, and not to scare people, my, yeah, every person's unique. Some people go straight into it and they have a very smooth experience. For me, it was just sort of that, like, one, hard-headed, you know, ranger, you know, taking a while to learn lessons, but two, that need for, like, control and, and understanding the situation. So that was sort of the forces that we're, we're fighting. And as anybody will tell you with the psychedelic experience, the whole process and the whole way of working with them is you have to find a way to, to let go, to release, to allow the psychedelic to do what it's doing. And it's, it's like water. Like if you move with the current, then it's going to be a much smoother process. It's going to take you where it's going to go. If you try to fight the current, then it's generally going to like knock you down, slap you in the face. Is that, uh, you're not going to win. Is that a big part of where the shaman comes in? Uh, I'm just asking from a little bit of personal experience with, uh, I've never done ayahuasca. I sure want to, but, uh, with, golden teacher psilocybin mushrooms i did a 12 to 14 gram super dose <laughs> that is a super dose yeah that was uh that was something else but um while i was in it because i completely unhinged from reality with uh because <laughs> i was swinging for the fences man what i needed but i didn't have was a guide to let me know that i was safe and i was okay and um, is that, like, how important is that? People will call them a shaman. Let's just say a guide. Uh, a, yeah. guy, a guide that understands what you're going through um, to just to keep you level. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll, I'll, I'll keep you up to date. We'll, we'll have you at one of our, one of our retreats uh, in, the, in, the, in the near future, if oh. that's something you're, you're in line to do. Uh, that is something I've been looking for for a while. Absolutely. Sign me up, coach. I'm going in. So there's, there's different layers of it. So there's like sitters, um, or yeah, like guides, um, the shaman or the healers or the, in, in, in Peru, Cardenderos, uh, there's a lot of different names for them. So it's, it's almost like different certifications for a very crude way of putting it. Um, for psilocybin, especially if you're doing it locally, then you really want to have like a sitter or a guide because then they're there to sort of help you out that way because these, these things kind of come in sort of waves where there can be very intense moments and that can kind of freak people out and they like try to like hold on. And the more you do that, the more you kind of fight with it. Um, and so like, instead of like having that devolve down, having the guide there when they know that you're struggling, they can kind of just come over and be like, Hey, it's okay. 
just breathe, remind you to breathe through it, remind you that, you know, this is all part of the process. Sometimes touch can help uh, the, the person agrees to it. Just a sitter who knows what they're doing, they, just their presence can really be calming because especially with psychedelics, um, it, it enhances, and this has been shown, it enhances our, our sensories, our senses. So your, your sense of se- uh, sight, your sense of hearing, your sense of smell, even your sense of other people around you, it all is magnified. And so that's kind of why people say, like, if you're doing psychedelics like mushrooms or LSD, you don't really want to be with other people that are, like, very toxic energy or that their their energy is going to mix with you. Because if, like, you're in this room and everybody's freaking out, then you're going to start freaking out, too, because it's just this sort of chaos. You're picking up on it. If you're there with a guy that's calm and, and sitting, then you're actually going to pick up on that as well. Um, you know, we're... we're, we're communal sort of animals and so we we do actually pick up on on how the rest of the 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 crowd or the our group is is acting so the guides there they they help you they guide you they remind you they can give you tips if you're really having a hard time they can put some you know cold water on your head which all these things that can help from from people the healers the shaman those that are have far more experience it goes even more complex uh even more complicated especially with ayahuasca because it's so powerful and it has this tradition where these healers, they learn as apprentices, young children, um, and they become sort of very sensitive to what's going on in the space. So in the traditional view, and there's a lot of different traditions, but a, a common one, so like Shipibo, what they think they're doing or what they believe they're doing in, in their tradition is when people are taking ayahuasca in, in, um, in ceremony in, in the Malocas, which is the hut, they are there to sort of guide the energy, bring out bad energy, bad spirits, and sort of corral it, guide it. And so they sing these songs called Icaros, which they actually learn from the plants. So when they're doing their, their learning, when they um, interact and they do what they call dietas or diets with plants, in their view, every plant has a teaching, every plant has a message, right? They're, they're, they're sentient beings, they're intelligent beings. And so by being very fine-tuned and by using some of these master teachers like ayahuasca, they can learn sort of the healing properties of these different plants and how they can help. And so if you go with somebody in the Amazon, and this is not all like mental, this is not all spiritual, psychological, but if you go to um, these, these, these healers in, in these indigenous communities, they can go through the Amazon and, and know that like this tree can help with stomach issues. This tree is an anesthetic uh, for, for wounds and stuff like that because that's how they, they survive. They, they have a very intimate knowledge with their interaction. It's ecosystem. It's this balance with plants of so them using them for, for healing. And so things like ayahuasca are kind of more on the healing of the, the mental, the psychological, the spiritual side, as well as the physical side. And so when they do these dietas with plants, then they'll sing these songs that are taught to them by plants. And so if somebody's having a particular sort of issue they might call in the song of a certain plant to help them bring that out and so the healer in that sort of setting is really sort of like again a very crude analogy is like almost like the dj of it where if you ever go to like a dj show their whole job is to maintain like a certain level energy and get people and they can they can affect the mood of the crowd by the music that they're doing Again, very crude, but this is to for people to kind of understand. There's there, they tend to sing songs during this to sort of guide so the ceremony, guide the, the journey. These songs, because I, I know that I, anybody that hasn't done it would have been 
they would totally would have missed like like what do you mean they get it from the plant what do you mean yeah. the plant taught them the songs and tell me if i've got it uh on one of my mushroom experiences i haven't had a lot but uh um one of them and not the last one the big one i did uh there wasn't any singing coming to me it was a bit of a bummer but um one prior to that everything was given to me in song everything and um, there would be a particular lesson, and it would be sung to me. And, it, and so it's from the, the experience that I would hear this song. And uh, is, is that the same deal that like, when you say they got it from the plant, so they had their own experience, they heard the song uh, what, during the experience, and then they remembered it, and th- that's the song that they would sing for other people? Yeah, essentially that's it, you know, because that's that's what their, their calling is. It's their job essentially is they, one, they, they, they learn to work with ayahuasca, but then during their, their training, they do these dietas where they'll be in pretty much isolation. They'll eat very basic diets. So they're even more sort of sensitive. They'll do some ayahuasca ceremonies and then they'll essentially with their diet dieta, they'll take an essence of whatever plant that is known to be sort of a healing plant. And so when they take that essence and then especially in ceremony or, and they'll be in the middle of like nowhere in the Amazon, then these songs will come to them from this specific plant where these lessons will come from this specific plant. And so then they remember them and then that's almost like a tool in their, their tool belt that they can use that depending on what, what that plant is known for uh, in terms of sort of the, the healing. So you have to kind of look at it as like um, if, if this plant can, can cure stomach ailments, then this plant can cure like specific mental health issues as well. That's, that's how their belief system works. Um, which is, which is pretty interesting. Well, and it's actually, actually a lot of, it's, it's not, you don't need just to believe it. It's science. Uh, Cause song yeah, is absolutely. frequency. Different songs have different frequencies and frequencies. Our bodies react to these frequencies. So the idea of song, I can understand how people would roll their eyes and go, woo, woo. Like, I get it. I totally get it. The people that would dismiss it and just scoff. I understand the scoffing. I totally get the scoffing. But um, but I also get how it's unfortunate if you're scoffing because it, this is not woo-woo. It, it, the stuff works. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it takes – and I also understand. I believe it or not, I do come at this with a high degree of skepticism. Um, and I was not in any way thinking that I'd be talking when I first started this about, you know, music and guiding you and all this other kind of stuff, but just from what I've seen and experienced, then I can vouch for it. But it's also, you don't need to full on, you know, like subscribe to, to other beliefs and stuff like that. You just need to come to this with an open mind and just with the comfort that you don't necessarily know what's going on just because you don't have, you know, the FDA, telling you exactly what the mechanisms in the brain that this works through doesn't mean it doesn't work. You know, a lot of these traditions predate the FDA, predate even the scientific method, and they've evolved over time. They wouldn't be used. They're, they're in, its, uh, in their own essence a technology, just like anything else. You know, like um, it's, it's been passed down and been perfected over generations and generations, just as any other technology would. And just because a lot of our understanding hasn't caught up to that, then that doesn't mean it's not valid. The same way, it's only in the past few decades that science has come to be in approval of meditation and yoga. Before, those sort of practices were also seen as, you know, 
like these, these hippie sort of practices, but now they actually teach meditation in the military. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. before it was scoffed at, it was like, how does sitting with your own thoughts going to help you? Um, so just come with an open mind, but also the way, the reason why part of this works is we store a lot of our traumas and a lot of our emotions are on a different mental system on a different, different brain system. Most of the time, like right now we live inside of our frontal cortex in terms of the, I am the, this is what I'm going to do. That part of the brain, the, the front brain is great for quick decisions. It's great, great for quick choices and, and sort of how you narrate yourself. But the, the big supercomputer of our brain is in the subconscious. Um, and that's how you make these more complex decisions. That's where you get your gut feelings. That's where when you kind of sense something's wrong, that's that brain processing way more um, variables than we can possibly process in our frontal cortex. On the same side, that's also where the emotion lies, and that's where music hits. So when music, when you hear a certain piece, and it, it hits you emotionally, and you like tear up, or it makes you feel really happy, it's because it's almost connecting to a different part of the brain in a different language. The language centers don't go to the subconscious. Uh, they only go with, with our conscious sort of brain. And so that's why if you read a poem or certain mu- movies or certain music, when they hit you in that really like hard emotional way, it's, it's, it's working in sort of different, different pathways, different languages. So the same way with the psychedelic, it kind of, it suppresses sort of this, the ego that generally prevents us from being tapped into that. And it opens up the subconscious, which is why it can be good for trauma work because under the psychedelic experiences, these traumas can kind of come up. We can view them in different ways and the music can also tap into it because it can bring these senses of belonging or senses of sadness. And so that sort of calls into these traumas that have been affecting us in, in, in a, in a, in a different pathway than we're normally used to. And so that working with it um, is a very powerful thing. And I've been through many ceremonies and this is why I say I come at this as a skeptic where at first I'd think the same thing of like, Oh yeah, that's not going to work. But I've gone to ceremonies where people are not trained. They'll sing songs, but they're not like trained in this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been to ceremonies where there were no songs. And then I've been to ceremonies where it's with healers that have been doing this for 40, 50 years under this process. And they are night and day different in terms of experiences. And I've, been through enough of them and with with some changes where i can be pretty confident it's not just placebo of me wanting it to be that way if somebody um, was just in terms if, of the power if somebody was just taking the medicine say they got their hands on some ayahuasca and they were doing it without any guidance can there still be help like do they still yeah, get absolutely. benefits from that absolutely i would i would not necessarily recommend ayahuasca to be the one if they're doing it without help psilocybin is a little bit more approachable um what do you mean by approachable just, uh it, it tends to be it can still be very intense but it tends to be less intense uh than than i uh um and unless you do 12 to 14 grams unless you do 12 to 14 <laughs> even so i would still recommend if you're doing something on your on your own there's a lot of playlists you can you can do having music just really helps guide sort of the path and there's a lot of curated playlists that that kind of that are that are built based off of the progress of traditional psychedelic experiences of the intensity and then towards the end it becomes sort of this this culmination um and so i'd recommend a playlist ayahuasca is just i don't know it can be 
my experience with, with people testing different ones with and without music and stuff like that, you know, they can kind of go in and explore psilocybin. Ayahuasca can be a little bit more of a, of a mixed bag if you don't have a person there because it's so intense and because it can be very poignant and like it really picks on like certain things. So having the music there where it's sort of guiding it, it's almost like your lighthouse. It's, it's your guideline. Whereas if you're like deep into it and you don't have that, then you can, you can start to have these feelings of like, Oh, am I stuck in here? Or like it kind of helped. It it tends to people will might lose themselves a little bit more and that's not permanent. You'll, you will come out of it, but it can just be kind of a more taxing experience than it needs to be because it's already taxing, but having those songs and, and guidelines that guide the ceremony just kind of give you that anchor that, uh, at some points can make it like feel really rough because it like, almost like grinds into certain traumas that's coming out. But at other times when you feel like you, you're like exhausted, like having that song come in can be a very beautiful sort of dynamic. So I do highly, highly recommend if you are pursuing ayahuasca to do it with uh, somebody that knows what they're doing and with, with the guide of, of music. I've just seen a lot of people that kind of go at it on their own. And then they just have very, very challenging, sort Imagine of needlessly that. challenging experiences. Let's talk about different tools for different jobs. So for different experiences, there's different plants. We've got ayahuasca, psilocybin, iboga. Now, are there specific, uh, like for PTSD, is there one that you recommend over the others? Is For depression, is there one that you recommend? Or, or are they all healing? Do they all work just to you know, all the modalities are, are equal or is there a right tool for a, a specific job? So the, it's, it's a tricky question and the medical model, especially as these become more accepted in medicine is really going to try to lump them into this is for depression. This is for PTSD. This is for the specific, cause that's the way the medical model works. Like we need to have a diagnosis and then we need to have a specific plan of, of treating that. And so they want like, that's why in FDA trials, they're looking at MDMA for PTSD. They're looking at psilocybin for depression and that's how they're going to try to mold it. Our opinion and, and my sort of thoughts on this is that's the wrong way to approach it. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to lead you wrong, but it's just the wrong way to look at mental health. Mental health is not like a broken bone where you diagnose that you have a broken bone and then there's a pretty direct course of how you fix that. Mental health is a much more complicated thing and it varies with each of us. Um, we each, we all react to traumas differently. We all process it differently. It comes up and it affects us differently. And we, we have to go through it and process it in our own unique way. So each psychedelic, they all can be healing. Uh, but you all with, so the commonality is you want to do them all intention based. You want to do them all with preparation. You want to be very conscious of the set setting. That's the universal with all of them. If you're going to do them and you have no experience, do it with somebody who knows what they're doing and do it in a spot where you're comfortable, you're relaxed, you have the whole day set aside for it, and know what you're getting into, know where the sourcing's, all this kind of stuff, and do preparation. When you're going into it, know that you're going to it. Don't just do it on a whim. That's universal with all these psychedelics. Um, the more you can have professional people and, and ceremony around it, I think it just enhances it. What's your, thoughts, psychi- what's your thoughts on um, ketamine? Um, yeah, I think ketamine has a time and place, uh, just as much as, as everything else. Ketamine, 
there's benefits and there's disadvantages. So ketamine has more of a addiction profile where other uh, hallucinogenics don't. Like there's no um, there's there's no chemical addiction to psilocybin, uh, whereas some people use ketamine as a party drug, and sometimes there is there is abuse potential and, and uh, addiction potential. However, uh, on the other side, ketamine is in the U.S. anyway, Schedule Three, and you can also have they also have clinics in Can- in Canada, so it is yeah. accessible in terms of having the, clinical support. The clinics are starting um, to pop it, up here uh, left and right. I've had people that are running the clinics on the show, and yeah. it, do you think that? Uh, ketamine and ayahuasca are similar enough? Like, are, are they taking on a, on the same? Is it still a healing path? But it's is, still healing. It's it's similar enough, so you can get something out of it. But you might be able to get something out more. They're, they're, they're different enough to where just because you're, you're getting a tremendous amount out of one doesn't mean you won't get benefit out of the other. I would say, and this is hard to prove, but I would say with ayahuasca, if, if it's the right thing for you, then you're probably going to get a little bit more deeper and sort of specify healing, whereas ketamine might not go as deep. And so that's sort of the transition of like instead of thinking of like this, I have depression, what, what's the best? what we try to bring about is where are you at in your healing journey and what are you looking for? And so actually knowing the person, actually knowing where they're coming from and knowing a little bit more about the trauma and their day-to-day life, that helps a lot with what's probably the best bet, uh, more so than if they just say they're depressed. And so the reason I say that, so for instance, where ketamine comes into play, we kind of use it as it's sort of an easier frontline access and especially for people who are having really extremely hard time and they wouldn't necessarily be able to travel to, to Peru or something like that, or they're, they're kind of more in the unstable realm. If with, with the hallucinogenic, especially the bigger doses, you want to be relatively stable. Like you can still be struggling and all this kind of stuff, but you don't want to be like on edge. Like you don't know if you can hold on tomorrow or, or what have you. Like if you're on that sort of like super high manic, the hallucinogenics are probably not the best bet because they they need some sort of stability to come back to because they can really sort of shake things up, which can be healthy. But if you don't have a stable foundation, then that's not necessarily the best bet. Ketamine comes into play, one, because of the access. But chemically, ketamine is one of the unique ones where for about 70, mid 70% of the population, it has an immediate antidepressive effect. The extent of that varies on on person to person, but people who are actively like suicidal or depressed, if they go through a ketamine dosage for a lot of them, for that, that mid 70%, it can immediately like bring uh, immediately take away that depression, immediately take away those suicidal thoughts, which is a very powerful tool uh, for, for people that that other things are not working for. If somebody's actively suicidal, then I would not recommend ayahuasca for them again, for that sort of stability. And also they can possibly, also with ketamine um, in Canada, if you have a PTSD diagnosis, Veterans Affairs will will pay for the ketamine treatment. Yeah, which is absolutely and therapy, which is pretty great, and um, and it's a measured dose and it's it's a very safe environment. So that's all cool. And you and you have clinical support there. So if you are having a really hard time, you have therapists that are trained with that, so you get the continuum of care. So there's a lot of benefit to that. And the other side of it is. If you are on already a lot of medications, which is very common in the U.S., like SSRIs, 
you can't go to ayahuasca being on an SSRI or SNRI or Ibogaine for that matter. And so ketamine, you can actually be on those. Uh, you check with your doctor. Don't just say, don't just do it yourself. But they can actually work with people who are on different medications because there's not the same contraindication. So that, again, that first line of defense, if somebody's there and that's what they, they that, that kind of fits with their own, where they're at in that mental health journey, ketamine might be the best first step because they can use that and that use that piece and the psychotherapy to get off of SSRIs potentially. And then down the line, if they still want to pursue deeper healing, then they can turn to maybe a hallucinogen like psilocybin or ayahuasca, again, depending on what they're looking for and, and their journey. So again, we need to sort of sh- shift our perspective of mental health and how to treat mental health. We really need to start knowing people. We really need to start understanding where they're at as opposed to, hey, you have depression. Here is what you need to do. Um, and that's really how we do it because that's how the insurance model and for the mental health care is, is built around. Does and uh, what I suggest is very expensive, which is why it's yeah. going to be very hard for it to progress. Does heroic hearts also work with, with psilocybin then? Cause it's, it's not yeah, just ayahuasca. No, it's not just ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is kind of at the core, but we we've sent uh, veterans to ketamine, psilocybin, uh, Ibogaine retreat, five uh, MEO, um, not so much Iboga right now, just because of it's it's a big have nothing against it. It can be very effective. It's just a, a different sort of ceremony, um, and so yeah, they're all they're all great tools. Again, we we do our best. We we're not medical providers, and we're not going to say like you should do this, but we provide people with information about where. Well, at, at the very least, say this is dangerous. So like if they're on SSRIs, and we obviously want to prove them for an ayahuasca program. But the rest of it, we just kind of inform people and let them know what we've seen uh, is sort of the best bet. And then, you know, let them use their intuition to guide them to, to what's best. Generally speaking, we don't, we are doing actually a psilocybin study. Uh, so testing the effects of bigger doses of psilocybin on veterans with traumatic brain injury. Um, and so we're currently looking, we're fundraising for that. And so we, we built the protocols. We're partnered with Imperial College of London. Um, and so it'll be the first uh, study testing psilocybin's effect actually on the physical damage of the brain because there's a lot of evidence that psychedelics can physically heal the brain as well as psychologically. Is that all psychedelics that can do that or just psilocybin that can uh, create new neural pathways? We, we think it's all of them. Uh, there, there seems to be a commonality. The, the, the extent to which, we don't know. You know. We don't know if some are more potent than others, but across the board, even with synthetic like LSD, it shows, you know, increased neural pathways, so increased plasticity, which is that your brain is able to make new uh, important connections, which can allow you to, one, get past um, old connections, or if you have brain damage, it can kind of circumnavigate. Most of them uh, seem to have some sort of neurogenesis, so the promotion of creating new neurons, which wasn't thought possible before. Um, and we also think that they all have some anti-inflammatory effect. So for those of us who are exposed to a lot of concussive forces that put a, put, you know, a lot of pressure on our brain and, and damage on our brain, which hopefully we think these can actually uh, heal in, in, to some extent. Has there been research about uh, psilocybin and um, like things like dementia, the different types of dementia? They're, they're going into it. Um, it's, it's still early phases. So right now in terms of, because it's all a funding game and, 
especially with the um, classifications, you know, psychedelics across the board are the highest classified uh, substances, the highest controlled substances, which makes it extremely difficult and extremely expensive to study them. And because it's hard for people, the the only way the medical model moves forward is if they find ways to make money off of it because a Pfizer is not going to invest $10 million in something that they can't patent. What's so, your, I'm sorry. Um, it no, just, no. It just, we're, we're just over an hour here. So I've got so many questions. Um, I've had on the show somebody that makes synthesized psilocybin. Um, is it as good, not as good? Do you have any thoughts on synthesized psilocybin versus the natural deal? I mean, I'm sure you're going to get people that are just going to be, you know, like only natural and stuff like that. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to affect, um, you're still going to get a great effect on it. Like if that's all you have access to and, and that's the way it goes and they're doing research. And like I said, the, the research model has to have that sort of synthesized controllable like dosage and amount. It's very hard for research to use, um, like organic, like a, a mushroom, um, just cause there's a lot more variables. And so, yeah, you, if you have that psilocin, uh, you'll, you'll go in the experience. It can work in a lot of the same ways. It can still heal the brain. It can still bring up traumas. I kind of imagine or suspect that we will, down the line, future in the line, um, find that the actual organic mushroom is probably the best bet because there's, like, similar to cannabis where... Well, I, I, I agree, know, and, but there's so many different strains, they're, and they're yeah. all a different ride, right? I don't have a ton of mushroom experience, but I have had different strains. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Golden Teachers, but um, another strain that I tried, kind, kind of by accident, actually. <coughs> Pardon me. But it was a completely different ride, like completely yeah. different. So if it's a different ride, it occurs to me that, uh, okay, so you have synthetic psilocybin. Is it synthetic? Is it matching Golden Teachers? Is it matching one of the other 28 other strains or however many there are? I have no idea. That I, would feel, be- I feel like you'll, you'll have just sort of a different journey, but I feel like that's what we don't know. And so, you know, the, the different strains, they have different alkaloids going on in them. And so similar to cannabis, we have to imagine that, all the cannabinoids and the THC is affecting it differently than if you just do THC. It's that entourage effect that they found that CBD is actually more effective if there's a little bit of THC in it. Uh, I, I imagine it's going to be the same thing with, with mushrooms that each one, you know, as we get more fine tuned and, and learn about it and our own sort of healing culture reemerges around psychedelics, I, I imagine people like, Hey, golden teacher might be a little bit better for this or people in this sort of situation. Um, and you know, in terms of the, the healing properties like mushrooms and there's a lot of evidence that mushrooms and humans co-evolved. And so our bodies are, are used to eating the whole mushroom, not just the psilocin. Um, I've done, so the only related thing, I haven't done synthetic psilocybin yet, but I've done synthetic 5-MeO DMT and I've done organic and they both have very different feels. Um, and so I think it's going to be the same thing and you can still get a lot of benefit out of either one. But I think as we learn more, uh, we're going to have a little bit more finer sense of, okay, this is what I'm actually looking for. And so in my mind, I'm, I'm all about it. Like, let's have a synthetic and let's get this through trials and let's have people accept that these are healing. And then we are free to explore organic mushrooms as much as we want. Because at the end of the day, I'm like, if I'm going to do a mushroom trip, I'm, I'm, I'm going to choose a natural mushroom. I'm not going to go to a clinic and get 
a pill of synthetic psilocybin. It just doesn't make sense. Societally, how have we been doing as far as getting rid of the fear and the stigma of psychedelics? Like, have you seen a big progress over the last five years? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was fortunate when I started it. Five years is, is really not that, that long of a time, but I was fortunate enough to start uh, Heroic Hearts Project at sort of the in-between shifting of worlds and perspectives around psychedelics. So I got to see a little bit of the pre-sort of phase of, of people accepting it and now sort of the post-hype kind of phase. And really at the center of that were, were some major factors like Michael Pollan's book, uh, how to change your mind and sort of the John Hopkins uh, uh, psychedelics uh, center and, and research. So those sort of things really started changing perspective because one, Michael Pollan got into a broader um, parts of society that are, that tend to be a little bit more hesitant about psychedelics and then institutions like Johns Hopkins, which are internationally revered as, as serious research entities, the fact that they're looking into it with, with such, uh, enough to invest in, in an, a whole center for it, I think really started changing people's perspectives that, hey, this is actually something here. It's not just a hippie telling me that this is going to help you out. And so before that, you know, the conversations I was having, it was just a lot of um, cold calls and people didn't know what I was doing. And even veterans, there's like, uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know if I want to do this versus now people are, are looking, are finding us in droves. We, uh, we you know, VAs, people within the VA ask us to sort of give advice to their, how they're going to go about in the future, uh, adopting this politicians. We talk to pretty regularly. Well, so it you, is changing. Could you there imagine is, Jesse, still- could you imagine for a moment if the military decided to just jump into it, to embrace psychedelics and use them for uh, uh, like immediately after giant events, even in, in, on a microdosing, like during a tour, if people were micing, microdosing psilocybin mushrooms during tours, um, I mean, PTSD would be, I don't know about eliminated, but it would be lessened. And the hundreds of millions of dollars spent on veteran supports and um, and turnover, because it's expensive to train a soldier. Yeah. Well, what if you don't have to have so much turnover? What if people uh, don't burn out so quick and they, they stay in because you were microdosing the whole time? And uh, and what if big doses and, and ceremony is uh, just a thing that you can do if you want to do it? Uh, you know, if, if that was embraced by the military, which could you imagine the difference? I think I think it'll be tricky just because it's counter. Well, I mean, I'm not no saying I'm, t- I'm talking about fantasy land. Yeah. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Fantasy land, yeah. I'm I'm saying you know magic wand time could what it would look like if they did. I mean they won't, but if they did, well, it's actually an interesting discussion, and we've been asked this a lot, and I know this has been thought about by military leaders because it's on the radar at this point too, and there is actually a fear. You know, they, they do understand that it could potentially help, but there is a fear, too, that if people were to take bigger doses with while they're in, would that also make them rethink their career choice and want to get out? Would it I make guess them it would. rethink sort of their perspective? <laughs> and so there is actually the fear of retention there. Yeah. I'm kind of in between. Like, I think some people would, but I think some people would actually just make them better at their job because they wouldn't be bogged down. But it, it's 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 interesting. It's it's tricky. I, I don't know if we'll ever get to, to that level of, of fantasy land, but... I can settle for 
them at least allowing access to it to where people who are having issues uh, have more tools than they have right now. If we can get to that sort of happy medium where we're not just pipelining people to every medication that they can get their hands on and actually doing some of these more naturalistic uh, offerings or MDMA with a clinical therapist, if they can get over PTSD through, through that um, I'm, I'm all about it. You know, at the end of the day, I just want more guys to, to, I want less veteran suicide. I want more uh, people to, to be on positive mental health courses. Jesse, we're at an hour 15. Are you good for time? Cause I, I've got an, another big question. Okay. I, uh, yeah, I have like, I can do 15 minutes more. Okay. Well, this will be my last uh, question then, which <laughs> this could be a long answer or a short answer. Maybe you don't know, but psilocybin trips or ayahuasca, which I have no experience with, but I really want to, um, psychedelic trips are all about learning and teaching, learning and teaching and the learning and teaching provides the healing. And, and I mean, there's more to it, of course, but to me, that's my perspective. Now, the topic of killing is interesting to me because that was my job. That was your job. What do, on these rides, what do the, um, what is Mother Ayahuasca and the psilocybin mushrooms, the psychedelic trips, what do they have to teach us about killing and war? What's their perspective on it from the psychedelic, on a psychedelic ride? Like, what do they say about it? I think, I think it's less of what they have to say. I think that there's never, you know, and user experience uh, varies. And so somebody might, might counter this, but in my experiences with the psychedelics, it's not about them telling you what to do. It's not about them saying like, this is, there's, there's not like a moral compass. It's not like a Christianity or religion where it's like these 10 commandments. It's more of connecting you to, to, to you and, and having sort of this more expansive view of being able to recognize that you are, you know, an organism in this, in this macrocosm, you are part of nature, you are part of all of this and understanding yourself too, that you can love yourself and that you're connected to others and that you deserve love and all these sort of baseline messages. And then it's up to you of what you want to do with them. Uh, there, I've never seen any sort of like, this is bad or this, unless people are really trying to take advantage of the situation, which is a danger. Um, but, you know, I, 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 because even in these, you know, travel cultures that have these rich psychedelic traditions, there's still war, there's still conflict. And I think that's an inevitable part of humanity and nature in general. It's, it's not just an all peaceful sort of thing. There is survival, there is, uh, dangers as well. And so, you know, there can't just be sort of a universal rule on, on killing. Um, and, you know, especially with the soldier or the veteran, that, that sort of archetype goes back from the DNA of humanity that, and I think that's what psychedelics helps us embrace is sort of that more noble and, and, and so the soldier with integrity, the soldier that that's doing it for a noble purpose. And so if you can, key into that yourself as that servant, as that person who is willing to sacrifice themselves for the community that's willing to be carry the heavier load for everybody else and do that with, you know, integrity. I think that will actually make, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the world a better place. But that's, that's the, the key to it. Like if you're more in tune to yourself and you're more in tune to your harmony and, and 
you're actually like helping others, then I think that actually makes the world a better place. It doesn't have to be this like, oh, all killing's bad, all war is bad. Because we honestly, as humans, haven't figured out a way to uh, avoid that. And I don't think, I personally don't think we, we ever will. But if we can have more fine-tuned spots where, you know, it's, it's sort of the martial arts thing is like, we're prepared ourselves to defend ourselves. We're not going to instigate conflict, but if it comes to us, we can actually protect ourselves and those around us. I think if we transition into that, then that, that automatically makes all this, you know, I think that gets us to a a more progressive spot than we have. And so psychedelics, I think just kind of really taps you into your true self and, and to your connectedness to, to everything else. What a beautiful place to put a pin in it. Jesse, thank you for being on the show today. Absolutely. And let me uh, shout out, we uh, have a Canadian branch, so Heroic Hearts. We also have a UK branch if you're if you're listening in from the United Kingdom. So Keith Abraham is running the, the UK branch, Heroic Hearts Project UK. And then um, David Bassanato is in Canada, uh, Heroic Hearts Canada. So the Canada branch actually just got its nonprofit status in, in Canada. So we're going to be able to start doing programs and stuff and uh, educating and, and doing some research and hopefully connecting some local Canadian veterans. So if you're interested, please reach out. We always need more uh, veteran advocates in Canada. I know it's a smaller group, and so we really want to do our best to, to represent you. And Heroic Hearts, our promise is we're always going to be sort of an independent resource. We're not here to make money for, for drug companies or profits. We're here to help you get your mental health um, and here to provide you education that, that that helps you navigate all of this and provide access as well so uh look it up uh, you can do a google search all that kind of stuff and you can reach out to us heroicheartsproject.org um, we're a nonprofit in all these countries so your donations your funding really helps outstanding jesse please stay on the line you're listening to operation tangle romeo the trauma recovery podcast for veterans first responders and their families Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow and if there's an option there for rating please do so and this is why every time you click like leave a rating leave a comment what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast the help that you can't find doesn't help at all so help other people find this so that they can help themselves thank you thank you thank you and as always share share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring